1: A Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. So I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a little weird for us today. And here's the reason why. I made the decision at the last minute to do double episodes. And I didn't intend for this to happen. But quite frankly, if I don't, I'm never going to get caught up. Because I came into this week with a specific idea, and that was, I'm going to get completely caught up on the listener emails, and I'm going to have Chris Trapasso from CBS Sports on the show. We're going to talk about the Shrine Game and the Senior Bowl. But then a bunch of stuff happened, and then I recorded with Chris Trapasso, and it ran 43 minutes, and I thought to myself, it's going to be a 90-minute podcast. What am I going to do? Well, the answer is double the Bruce, double the fun. Two episodes on Thursday the 3rd and double the Bruce. So for those of you who are not Bruce fans, you're probably not listening to this podcast. But if you are, I'm really sorry that you got to deal with it twice in your podcast feed. But we have stuff to talk about. First off, the Buffalo Bills had their offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, leave to be the head coach of the New York Giants. The Buffalo Bills assistant quarterbacks coach, Shea Tierney, went with him. In his place, the Buffalo Bills promoted previous quarterbacks coach, Ken Dorsey, and hired former LSU and Carolina Panthers offensive mind, Joe Brady, to be their quarterbacks coach at LSU. LSU. Brady was the wide receivers coach and passing game coordinator. And in Carolina, he was the offensive coordinator before being let go halfway through the 2021 regular season. I'll level with you. I'm not entirely sure that you can look at this outline of coaches if you're Bills Mafia and not be pleased at striking the balance that the Bills did. On one hand, you have promotion from within. And continuity for Josh Allen, who made it very clear that he has a level of fondness for Ken Dorsey and probably is happy that he's the offensive coordinator. But with continuity comes stagnation sometimes. There are many Bills fans out there right now who wish they could see a different defensive mind for the Buffalo Bills because they're worried about stagnation. They're worried about the same systems getting tired and over again. Well, you get a chance to inject Joe Brady into the offensive staff. You're going to have a new offensive line coach, which a lot of us are going to hope that it is Mike Munchak, though I'm trying not to hold my breath about that. And so you get this new blood. You get different views. It's not just you lose one person and everybody takes a roll up. There's an element of promotion from within for sure. But it's not Ken Dorsey to offensive coordinator, Shay Tierney to quarterback's coach, and the wheel just keeps on spinning. So you don't have to worry about the stagnation. It's a balance between two concepts, which is continuity and fresh voices. And you ended up getting both of them. You avoid the situation that Jerry Seinfeld talks about in his stand-up routine, where men are wearing tuxedos because the tuxedo was clearly designed by a woman. He says, well, they're all the same. Let's just dress them all the same. That's the reason why at weddings, they're all wearing the same thing. It's so if the groom doesn't show up, Everyone can just take one step to the left and the whole process just continues on. That's why they don't say, do you take Bruce Nolan? They say, do you take this man? One of my favorite Jerry Seinfeld bits is on clothing and tuxedos. But that's what you run into sometimes with coaching continuity, which we all praise as being a good thing. But you also run into stagnation. You run into things getting a little stale, perhaps. So you kind of get the best of both worlds with the Buffalo Bills promotion of Ken Dorsey and insertion of Joe Brady. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We are going to get every single email done. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We have emails. Do we ever have emails? And I promised you last week, I would get to as many as humanly possible. We're going to do it. This is the week. Andy says, Bruce, did you know that Stefan and Trevon Diggs both have contracts that expire after 2023? As in after the Bills play the Cowboys in Orchard Park during the regular season? I'm going to summon my inner Evan with this take. Steph talks Trey White into giving Trevon a taste of the Ryan Clark style film study treatment during the off season. That alongside witnessing Bill's mafia firsthand and seeing Dallas continue to be mediocre for the next two seasons, causes Trevon to sign his next contract while sitting next to his brother, who signed an extension at the same time. All right, so if you were a listener to this podcast back when Trevon Diggs was coming out of college, what I said was Trevon Diggs is a project and there's a time to take projects. It's the back half of day two. It's where you take Dawson Knox's. It's where you take Spencer Browns, people who have really cool upside, but are very raw. And I stood by that. And a lot of people thought that means I was hating on Trevon Diggs. And it wasn't. He was a converted wide receiver who didn't move like a corner. A lot of people think after the year that he had in Dallas, that somehow he's totally arrived. And I actually don't think that's true. I think Trevon Diggs is a perfectly reasonable cornerback. However, the term boomer bust applies more to him than maybe any other cornerback in football right now. So I'm very interested to see what he looks like next year, given how significantly turnovers affected our opinion of him this year and given how random turnovers can be. So I'm not willing to be like really excited about this take because I'm not entirely sure Trevon Diggs is an elite corner right now. I would love to see him continue some really good ball production, obviously not going to be that much ball production, while also tightening down some of the other things if he continues to develop. I think there's a very reasonable chance he has markedly fewer interceptions next year, but could be a markedly better corner. And he also sends another one says, A.J. Epenesa's body recomposition during his rookie campaign had a similar but not as drastic effect on his breakout timeline as Harrison Phillips' injury at the start of his second year. As such... Look for him to start to hit his stride around week nine of year three and really get there during a postseason run. We are going to talk about A.J. Epinesa at some point this offseason. I have an idea for kind of a podcast that's just going to be A.J. Epinesa related. But it's tough to do those kind of things in an audio platform. I remain very mindful of the fact that this is an audio platform and not a visual platform. So I try really hard not to slip into specific things that would require a visual platform for proper information absorption. So you've seen me do some smattering of film work with some other people on other networks, but we don't do a lot of it here because again, it's an audio podcast. So it's kinda hard to do that kind of stuff, but we're gonna do our best with AJ Epinesa this particular year. And I'll kinda give you my take on Andy's take at that point. Andre says, Hi, Bruce. I saw you were looking for off-season ideas on Twitter, so I figured I'd shoot one over. I'd be interested in you evaluating the bill's return on investment for 2021, how they decided to allocate their draft and monetary resources, and how the position groups formed in relation to that investment. So, as I plotted out the entire off-season, I didn't have a spot for this as an entire episode, so I said, okay, we're going to do it right here because I didn't want to just ignore the question by any means. So, for me when I look at the Bills' offseason investment and I look at players like Emmanuel Sanders, when I look at players like Gregory Rousseau and Spencer Brown and Boogie Basham, Tommy Doyle, Marcus Stevenson, Matt Hawk, those are most of the big acquisitions that happened in the 2021 offseason. And I think it's interesting because we said a lot over the course of the offseason that the Bills' biggest jump was going to come from the improvement of players who were already on the team, not through new acquisitions. We said it about Dawson Knox. We said it about Cody Ford. We said it about Tremaine Edmonds. We said it about Ed Oliver. And we were right. Some of the biggest contributions that the Buffalo Bills got in improvement were through Dawson Knox, Ed Oliver, to a lesser extent, Devin Singletary, these were players who took a step forward. Harrison Phillips took a step forward. So I think the acquisitions that the Buffalo Bills made in the 2021 season when it comes to free agents and through the draft didn't give them a ton of return. I thought Gregory Rousseau was maybe the best acquisition that they made specifically because he is a starter right now with a really good trait right now, not elite, But Gregory Rousseau is a really good edge-setting run defender right now. And he's a starter. And for you to be able to get that type of contribution from a rookie is perfectly good. Now, are we always going to be okay with that level of contribution from Gregory Rousseau? No. At some point, we're going to want to see more. In fact, we're going to want to see more next season from Gregory Rousseau. Another player who we didn't see a step forward from was A.J. Epinesa. We didn't see a step forward from Cody Ford. But we don't need everybody to take a step forward. We just need as many people as possible to take a step forward in order to root for a team that is better than it was the year before. Even if the acquisitions are not sexy, not flashy, overall, I'd say the return on investment was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. It was okay. Because you spent a first round pick on a player who started for you and had a very good trait Right off the bat. And we all knew that Gregory Rousseau, after taking a year off and being a converted wide receiver, is a player that really is going to need some time. And we got fooled a little bit in the preseason. We got fooled a little bit rookie minicamp by thinking, hey, maybe Gregory Rousseau is really, really good right now as a pass rusher. No, not really but he is very good as an end-setting run defender right now. I think right now you could make an argument that rookie Gregory Rousseau was just as good as contract year Shaq Lawson. And if that's the floor, if that's what you get your rookie year from a player who had taken a year off, I think I'm okay with that. So I'd consider it to be okay. Not, I wouldn't even go as far as to say good. Just Okay. When it comes to ROI, Pete says, Hey Bruce, you may not be aware of this, but the NFL is a few short months away. I have no doubt we'll be getting into needs and prospects in short order, but before all that, I find the need value conversation, an interesting one to revisit every year. And I find myself skewing more and more toward the value side of the equation. Need is important. Value is important. Need, meaning positional need, with considerations for positional value, value being both positional as well as perceived talent in the form of the prospect's draft grade. Of course, both need and value factor into good decision-making. Those concepts acknowledged as a central tenet, drafting more so for value than for need, constructs a roster of the most talented players on the most favorable multi-year contracts, albeit with the potential drawback that some roster issues couldn't be completely resolved in free agency. Contrastingly, if you approach the draft primarily as a way to fix the biggest weaknesses on your roster, you end up passing over players you believed significantly more likely to succeed when assigning prospect grades. Not only have you passed on players you graded as having more pro potential than the ones you selected, you've also increased the likelihood that the players you take won't pan out, in which case you'll be failing to fill the roster need that you actually prioritized. Ideally, the objective is sticking to your draft board. We know Brandon Bean believes in this because he uses free agency to hedge against any glaring needs well before draft day. He also accepts that the draft board won't always align with team needs. Need can be a tiebreaker between similarly rated prospects. Forgoing the opportunity to add the best bargain talent to your team because you don't absolutely gotta have a player at that position this season seems patently disadvantageous. I appreciate you giving your time and reading what's become a bit of an essay and I hope you're able to glean something useful for it. I'm excited about the offseason. I look forward to seeing how this team reloads for a run next year. So we're going to talk about need and we're going to talk about value a lot coming up to the draft. And I will tell you this right now. Every team drafts for need. Nobody takes purely the best player available. Nobody. Anytime a GM tells you that they take purely the best player available, they are lying. They're lying. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. If that was the case, you would see a lot of teams draft a quarterback when they already have a quarterback locked up to a big extension. You see that all the time. Well, he was the best player on the board. But that never happens. The closest thing you have to that is head scratchers like the Eagles taking Jalen Hurts in the second round. In fact, even after Washington drafted Robert Griffin III, and then they doubled back and got Kirk Cousins later on. It was a fourth round pick and people were still like, wait, what are you doing? What are you doing? That was a huge narrative. What are you, What that's so weird. And that was the fourth round. That's how uncommon it is. It's so uncommon people raise an eyebrow when you do it in the fourth round after you ostensibly have your guy. That's how weird it is. So every GM who tells you that they're purely best player available is a lie. They're all lying. Nobody does that. They more heavily weight toward best player available, but everybody takes needs into consideration. And like you said, it's not one hundred zero. 0 It's like 80-20. The way that I have historically tried to outline what I believe that GMs do around the league is they pick the best player available at a position where they do not currently have a stud that will consistently keep the player you're drafting from getting playing time during that player's rookie contract. That's the way I look at it. So if you're a GM, you draft the best available player at a position where you do not currently have someone who will consistently keep that rookie player from being able to provide the team value for the entirety of their rookie contract. That's it. Those are the only restrictions when it comes to need. In my mind that consistently apply across the board. So for me. That's the best way I have come up with. To explain what they're doing. Jesse writes in. And says that he believes. That the Bills were a real championship contender. But a half tier down from the very best teams in the NFL. He points out that the Bills were one in four. Against what he would consider to be premier opponents. Winning against the Chiefs but then losing to the Titans, Chiefs, and Buccaneers. Now, he says, quote, Looking at these five games, the flaw appears in a place where one might not expect. According to regular season statistics, we were the best defense in the NFL, but when facing premier competition, our defense didn't fare as well. We failed to even limit the best rushing offenses when we faced the Titans and Colts. And we failed to contain the passing offenses of the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buccaneers. The Bills' defense didn't just struggle in one area when facing elite competition. They generally struggled against whatever the best teams do well. The Bills' defensive difficulties, in my opinion, can be primarily attributed to the lack of high-end athletic talent on the defensive side of the ball. Edmonds and Oliver are the only off-the-chart athletes on defense, but Edmonds' physical traits are nullified by average instincts, and Oliver's physical traits have been nullified by inconsistent play at the other line positions until the emergence of Harrison Phillips. The Bills have excellent players in the secondary, but they don't have an athletic equivalent or close to a receiver like Tyreek Hill or as large as Mike Evans. Brandon Bean has drafted players on both sides of the ball according to a philosophy that plates trace and potential above the concept of a player being immediately, quote, NFL-ready. On the offensive side of the ball, he got Josh Allen, a game-changing player who can manufacture five to ten plays a game out of nothing with great skill and athleticism. In my opinion, the main factor keeping the Bills a half tier down from the most elite teams is this lack of X factor on defense. There are other improvements the Bills can make, of course, but one game-changing defensive stud would go the longest way to raising them from tier 1B to tier A. It's almost like you read my piece. I am writing a piece for Buffalo Rumblings that will release later this week about Harrison Phillips and whether or not I believe Harrison Phillips is ready to be the starting one technique defensive tackle for this team in 2022. Now, I previously said that I'm in favor of re-signing Harrison Phillips. I gave some outlines of some contracts that I thought were very reasonable. But in the event that they don't re-sign him, or even if they do, I would be very, very interested in a dominant, one-tech, two-gapping defensive tackle. You mentioned that Oliver has been impacted by less-than-stellar play next to him. And Edmonds has elite athleticism, but as you said, average instincts. What if I told you that one elite player in the middle of the defensive line could potentially unlock both of them? Now, Ed Oliver already had a really good year. He doesn't really need to be unlocked, but further developed would be nice. And while Harrison Phillips is a perfectly reasonable player, I think he's given us reasonable one-tech play, and Star Tule may or may not be back next year, I think that looking at a player that is dominant with the ability to be assigned two gaps and disengage at will from an offensive lineman would really do a lot for both Oliver and Edmonds and could really help this defense go to the next level because it's something they haven't gotten is elite level one technique play. Now, I don't think Jordan Davis is going to be around when the Bills pick, and I don't think they should trade up to get a one technique defensive tackle, but. I do think Fadarian Mathis is a really good player. I'm going to talk a little bit about him with Chris Tepasso from CBS Sports. I do think that Travis Jones is a really good fit in that role, who's probably going to be a day two pick. And that's the type of player who I think could unlock some players around him. Because you may not be able to get an elite level pass rusher at 25. We've had the exact same conversation last year that you're probably not going to get an elite level pass rusher right away when the Bills were picking, and guess what? They took Gregory Rousseau, and they, they didn't get an elite-level pass rusher there. That's not what Gregory Rousseau is at this point in his career. So I do agree that getting an athletic stud on the defensive line would really help. In this case, I think it would help on multiple fronts. I think it would help Ed Oliver. I think it would help Tremaine Edmonds. So that's a player I'd like to see the Bills go and get, a stylistic archetype of the player I would like the Bills to get. Jeremy says, Bruce, in the film Any Given Sunday, the writer Jack Rose pontificated about the quarterback position for the 21st century, a new breed of athlete and man. It seems like the NFL has been chasing that quarterback for the better part of three decades. I think the Bills-Chiefs game has ended the search. The NFL thought they had this modern-day quarterback in Randall Cunningham, but they came up a little short. The NFL found that quarterback in Steve Young, but then lost it again. Michael Vick was close, but no cigar. Same with the likes of Dante Culpepper and Jeff Blake. However, in the last several years, the NFL finally found the 21st century quarterback in the form of Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, and Justin Herbert, not to mention Joe Burrow. The NFL continued to show buy-in last year for the 21st century quarterback with the selections of Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance. To the extent there are any holdouts on this trend, I think the Bills-Chiefs game put that to bed. I predict 20 years from now, NFL historians will point to that game as the death of the dropback quarterback. Thank God. Side note, have you reached out to Cutco Knives as a sponsor for Food for Thought? It seems like this would be a natural fit. They make amazing kitchen knives that last forever and are locally owned in Olean, New York. I guess that there are a lot of Bills fans among the employee base. Well, first off, Jeremy, thank you so much. I will talk to Nate about that when it comes to food for thought. I don't even know if I pronounced the New York town correctly. That should tell you I don't live in that town if I pronounce it wrong. In regards to the 21st century quarterback, I really think that the 21st century quarterback could have been the 20th century quarterback if it wasn't for coaches. I think Michael Vick could have been that guy if it wasn't for Dan Reeves trying so hard to make him a West Coast quarterback. I don't think the athletes changed as much as the coaches did. Now, I do think they changed. I absolutely do. Not too long ago, the idea that you put your best athlete at quarterback was insane. Why would you do that? And now that's what people do in middle school and in high school and a lot of times in college. If you have the best athlete on the field, why wouldn't you want the ball in his hands as often as humanly possible? Let's put him at quarterback. That wasn't always the case. So the athletes have changed, but I think the coaching has changed more than the athletes. I think we could have ushered in the new era of quarterback a lot earlier if the NFL wasn't so slow to adapt. CFAF says, Hi, Bruce Nolan. I hope all is well with you and your family. I have finally arisen out of the fetal position to write some of my observations of the Chiefs-Bills game. I believe there were several reasons why we lost the game, and I'll start with the most obvious. The defense, just like Micah Hyde interception against the Pats set the tone last week. The Chiefs scoring on their first drive set the tone for this week. The Bills defense played timid, often blew their assignments, had difficulty tackling, and the young defensive lineman struggled significantly. The coaching, I've said in an earlier email, I did not believe Sean McDermott was a top 10 coach, and I think there are several gaffes in the final 13 seconds that were clearly on him and Leslie Frazier. I don't want to get into the squib kick as I feel like that's been beaten to death. I just don't understand why they played as if the Chiefs needed a touchdown and not a field goal. They rushed four instead of three when Mahomes was going to take approximately two seconds to get the ball out of his hands. The defense appeared to have been gassed. Why not use the timeouts early to get the defense some much-needed rest? It's apparent there are high highs and low lows with Sean McDermott while I'm not calling for his job, as I think he's an above-average head coach. He clearly needs to be held accountable for his gaffes. These are the kind of gaffes that could cause a head coach to lose a locker room. Just like Sylvester Stallone and Copland, McDermott blew it. However, there are two other not-so-obvious parties at fault. Brandon Bean. I think a big difference maker in the game was the Chiefs GM. Veach saw weaknesses during the regular season and went aggressivist. He went after guys like Ingram. Our GM has been scared to make an in-season move after trading for Kelvin Benjamin for a third-rounder. While Brandon Bean has been a good GM, his lack of in-season adjustments have placed tremendous pressure on the coaching staff to fix glaring issues. While Bobby Johnson was able to have offensive line play well toward the end of the season, the defensive line appeared to have regressed. There were reasonable cornerbacks that could have had, be added for depth after White's injury, and Shaq Lawson could have been added and he would have been a considerable upgrade over A.J. Epinesa or Carlos Basham. Myself. Perhaps the biggest reason for the Bills' loss, he says, would be me. I watched the game at my in-laws' house, and it was the same place I would watched the Cardinals game last year. I can't believe the outcomes were so similar. Both situations evolved an amazing last-minute touchdown by Josh Allen with little time left on the clock. I'm sorry, Bills Mafia, and I promise to never watch an important game there again. Sincerely, Seafith. First off, yes, I blame you entirely. What are you doing, Seafith? Seriously. I swear. You know what? Yeah, I'm done. You know what? I'm taking it off my headset. I'm just going to take it over right here. Come on, Seafith. What are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Just playing around with you because that's what I do. But yes, it's clearly your fault. The Brandon Bean thing is interesting. The TreDavius White injury occurred after the trade deadline, so he wasn't going to be able to trade for somebody. And I don't think there was anybody on the street who was going to come in and be better. So that one I really can't I really can't bash him too much for that. Now, Shaq Lawson coming in and being better than AJ Panes and Carlos Basham, maybe, but you're splitting hairs because Shaq Lawson is not a really really strong pass defender. And multiple teams have seen Shaq Lawson so far for what he is, which is a perfectly reasonable rotational defensive lineman. So I really think you're splitting hairs if you think he's better than A.J. Epinesa or Carlos Basham right now. He's okay. So I just don't think any of those things would have made any sort of significant impact, if at all, on the results of what you're seeing. Now, in regards to coaching in the last 13 seconds, I agree with you. There are a lot of things in the last 13 seconds I didn't like. I didn't like the defensive play calls. I didn't like rushing four instead of three for all the same reasons that you outlined. Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier really struggled in the last 13 seconds. And that's something they're going to have to live with for the entirety of the offseason. Now, I don't I don't think that Sean McDermott is a bad head coach. I think he's a very good head coach. I do think he's a top 10 head coach. Top 10 is, you know, top third in the league. I'm good with that. And for me, there are plenty of things that if the Chiefs would have lost, the Chiefs would have looked to Andy Reid as a failure. In fact, that's exactly what happened. When the Chiefs lost to the Cincinnati Bengals, there was a lot of people out there. Just go ahead and search on Twitter, fire Andy Reid. Tons of them. Tons of them. Andy Reid's not a big game coach winner. The only reason the Chiefs have been able to get this far is because of Patrick Mahomes and Eric Bieniemy. Don't do it. When the Chiefs ran the speed option with a tight end on third and short against the Buffalo Bills, the Chiefs fans were losing it on Twitter and saying, what kind of play call was that? If the Bills win that game, that's what they're freaking out about. That's their 13 seconds. Blake Bell is their 13 seconds if the Bills win that game. So I agree with you. I think it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. Kevin says, hey, Bruce, regular listener here. Love the show. I just got done listening to your SEPA episode. All the overtime ideas coming in from your listeners inspired me to come up with my own idea for a modified rule. What if rather than deciding who gets the ball first in overtime by a court toss, why don't they just give the ball first to whichever team's defense was on the field at the end of regulation? That keeps the flow of the game going and takes the polarizing coin flip out of the equation. Another yet similar idea I have would be whichever team last scored and tied the game has to kick off at the start of overtime. All the other rules would remain the same. So with your first idea, I can envision a scenario where a team at the end of the game purposely punts the ball. If they get it back with eight seconds left, just go ahead and punt it because we want to be on defense when the clock ends. I think it would create this weird hot potato thing at the end of regulation, and I don't think it makes for very good football. Now, the second idea, whichever team last scored and tied the game has to kick off at the start of, all, of overtime. That one, I don't I don't hate that much. I do think that it kind of robs a little bit of the drama from the team because you're like, yeah, I'm really excited. We did it. Now it's, here we are, it's an even playing field again, but it's not really an even playing field. So you didn't really tie it up because you got to tie it and get a stop before you're really like back in the driver's seat again. So I think it robs some of the drama of that, but I'm okay with it. All things considered. I don't really love the overtime rules as is. So I'm going to listen to all sorts of things. Andrew says, almighty take coaches learn too. Hi, Bruce. Bruce. I want to start this by saying thanks for another great season of content and your narrative busting efforts. Your pod is one of my must listens every week, and it's always refreshing hearing and reading your perspective after a win or loss. I look forward to more great content and perspective this offseason beyond. Here's my almighty take Sean McDermott will improve this offseason, maybe particularly with game time communication and coaching executions. Bam! What a take. I know it's a vanilla take. And it's fairly vague and ambiguous, but this week has shown me that many in Bills Mafia have a very different set of expectations for a coach than for a player, or at least one player. When it comes to McDermott, many fans discredit or don't realize his accomplishments, or solely focus on the decisions with bad outcomes, or generally bad decisions during their game. You and others have spent plenty of time detailing McDermott's positive skills and traits, and every reasonable person knows firing him would be a colossal mistake. But I also see lots of people saying, he's the next insert coach who couldn't get to the big game like improvement through experience doesn't happen with a coach in 2018 the rest of the NFL laughed at Josh Allen while Bill's mafia saw potential Allen had plenty of mistakes but the mafia rallied around him on social media and would defend mistakes with the great plays that weren't being talked about that continued until really this season when most of the doubters just had nothing left to say McDermott on the other hand I know it comes with the position he's in, but reactions from the mafia are much more like, this is it, this is what McDermott is, and he's not going to get it done. I would argue that Sean McDermott's desire to improve is on par with Josh Allen's. Earlier in the season, when the team struggled and McDermott was getting dragged for conservative decisions, many people were saying he was reverting back to his old ways, and maybe he didn't walk the talk when it came to growth. It wasn't long before that was put to bed. Since 2017, Sean McDermott has improved as a head coach. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. But in my eyes, it's a fact that he lives the self-improvement mantra he's always repeating. And failure drives him as much or more than it does Josh Allen and many others. He looked like a tomato in that post-game press conference. There was a lot of pent-up energy in his face. And it will fuel him to find ways to be a better coach going forward. We may see, we may not. But I'll bet the people he works with will. He is easily one of the best examples of a leader I've ever seen in sports and business. He understands what it takes. He's not afraid to do what's necessary to help this organization succeed. Again, thank you and your wife as well for the time you put into providing great content for all of us to help process what happens with the team we love each week. Sincerely, Andy. First off, thank you for taking the time to say thank you to Mrs. Nolan because people don't realize that this time that I spend doing this comes away from my time with her. So I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but my wife is my best friend. And when I say best friend, I mean like, she's like really my only friend. Like the only person I actually go out and do social things with. Like that's it. It's just me and my wife. And so we're best buddies and we do everything together. So anytime I do something like this, it's time away from that. And at no point in the years I've been doing this, not a single time has my wife rolled her eyes or given me a side glance when I said, hey, I got to go record this pod, or hey, I got to do this guest spot. Not a single time. And if she did, I would stop doing it. So part of the reason you get Bruce content is because Mrs. Nolan is cool with it. And I make no apologies for this. So absolutely. In regards to your Sean McDermott take, I think that one of the reasons why people do that for Josh Allen and they don't do it for Sean McDermott is because it's so much easier to see Josh Allen's improvement than it is Sean McDermott's. But I want to put your eyes on this thought. And that is this. Have you ever done a job for four years before? Like the same job for four years? Are you better at it year five than you were year two? Well, what what if it's not throwing a ball? What if it's not physical skills? What if it's not muscle memory? Are you still better at it? Do you learn better how to communicate with your coworkers, your boss, your employees? Do you learn tricks of the trade Do you gain perspective and wisdom the more you do it? Uh, We've tried that before. It didn't work out too well. We probably shouldn't fall back into those old tropes again. How is that any different than being an NFL head coach? A lot of times we don't think about it like it's a job, which is weird because we don't identify with it in that way. We, We can't connect with the idea that it's a job if we don't view it first as a job. And that's what it is. It's a job. Now, it's a contractual job. It's a high-profile job. It's a highly scrutinized job, but it's still a job. You're probably better at the job five years in than you were two years in. And if you were good two years in, you're probably very good five years in. So I don't think it's absurd at all that coaches can change and get better. You're familiar with the Riverboat Ron moniker for Ron Rivera? That was not a thing early on in Ron Rivera's tenure. He was not known as Riverboat Ron. That was a drastic personality shift that happened with him that made him become known as Riverboat Ron Rivera. And Sean McDermott has adjusted. I always tell people, go back and look at 2017. It's not the same coach. And part of it's because he recognizes what the team he has now is capable of versus what the team he had before. So I agree with you. I think Sean McDermott can evolve. I don't know if he will, but I certainly think he can. Samuel says, Dear Bruce, you can choose to share all of this, part of this, or none of this. The ball's in your court. I don't have anything close to an almighty take. I just need to share some thoughts with you. Well, I'm going to read all of it. I lived in Buffalo for the first 24 years of my life. There isn't a city like Buffalo in the world. While I don't miss shoveling, I do miss everything else that comes along with living there. I didn't realize how much I miss walking into Wegmans and seeing Bill's gear on a majority of the people. I miss getting my car stuck in snow and some strangers coming out of nowhere and getting me out. It's a different city with different people and it's amazing. Now, I've been living in Maryland for six years and I teach high school music at a school. I love it with all my heart. The students are all in on Bill's Mafia. They love asking me about the season and who my favorite players are. Are they going to win this week, Mr. Sam? Obviously, my answer is always yes. I have to point out a huge difference between their interactions towards me and their interactions towards FAMBA other teams. I have a student that walks into class after a Cowboys win and shouts, how about them Cowboys? He receives the most ridicule, and rightfully so. After the Bills Chiefs, I receive nothing but condolences. After wins, I receive nothing but praise and high fives, and usually that's the custom. I find it interesting that in the real world, people look at the Buffalo fan base differently than they view other fan bases. I love being a Bills fan. Next, I want to express my gratitude for the Bills season this year, especially the postseason. I watched the Patriots thrashing from the comfort of my home. I went into school the next day and received nothing but glowing praise and adorations from my students for the perfections of the Bills and destruction of the Patriots. It was an amazing feeling. Monday, the day after the Patriots thumping, my mom, who lives in Pennsylvania, called me telling me that my dad was very sick and she had to take him to the hospital. My father came down with a serious case of COVID and pneumonia. Friday, my mom called me weeping on the phone. My dad had to go on a ventilator in an attempt to save his life. I dropped everything and went to be with her. The days leading up to Bill's Chief game were nothing short of horrible and defeating. It's never easy to watch people you love suffer. Sunday after church, we had a long afternoon until the Bill's game in the evening. The anticipation was killing me. For days, my mind was focused on one thing, and now I had the chance to enjoy something I love, and boy, did I enjoy it. 13 seconds left. We're going to the AFC Championship game. I was running laps around the house, fielding texts from friends congratulating me. And my 95-year-old grandmother was calling me from Buffalo asking, Did you just see that? It was electric. Well, we all know how that turned out. While our hearts were broken, my mom decided to call the hospital after overtime to see if we could get some good news before bed. The nurse said that they had been decreasing his oxygen use and my dad could be pulled off the ventilator soon. He was going to be okay. Monday, he was taken off the ventilator, taken out of the ICU, and is in his own hospital room recovering. All glory to God. I guess the reason I'm sharing this with you is to express my thankfulness for a team that gives us hope in life. I didn't just watch Football Sunday because I liked it, and I do, but because I had hope that the Bills would win, or at the very least, try. I had hope the season would continue, and I would continue to talk about it with my students. That could not be said of Bills teams of old at least for a few hours, I had my mind off the trials and worries of life and I was able to smile and enjoy watching a team I love. So thank you Buffalo Bills for an amazing season. I look forward to watching you play for the rest of my life. Sam. You know, stuff like this we kind of forget about when things go badly. We get so mad and we want to direct our anger at people. We direct it at Sean McDermott, but we can't talk to Sean McDermott. So then we direct it to all the people who are not mad at Sean McDermott. We're mad at John McDermott through a third party. We're so mad. and We lose perspective on the fact that this is supposed to be fun. I did a podcast earlier this year talking about fandom and how this is supposed to be a hobby. It's supposed to be a net positive. Even in the losses, it's supposed to be a net positive because it connects people together. Those people you talked about at Wegmans, a lot of them have nothing alike aside from the fact that they're both wearing Bills gear. But in that moment, that's all that's necessary for them to go, go Bills, go Bills. Go Bills is like aloha. You say it to say hello, you say it to say goodbye. And it doesn't matter the person you're saying it to. It doesn't matter their creed, their religion, their race, their gender, their age, their income. All that matters is go Bills. This is supposed to be the good thing. The hobby binds you with somebody else. Let me ask you this. If you lived in a bubble, And you watch the Bills alone. And you didn't have anybody to talk to about the Bills. You didn't have anybody to email with about the Bills. You didn't have any Bills content to consume. Would you love the Bills as much? Probably not. Because it's a communal activity. Fandom is a communal activity. And it brings us net positives of joy. And so even though the Bills lost this game, doesn't take anything away from any of this. Only one team is going to walk away from this year really thrilled. It's going to be the Bengals or it's going to be the Rams. Every other team is going to have some degree of heartbreak. Some degree of heartbreak. There's some teams that are optimistic. Yeah, well, we didn't make the playoffs, but we didn't really think we were going to make the playoffs. Expectation minus reality equals disappointment. But only one team gets to hoist the trophy. And I think we'd do well to just remember that it's supposed to be fun. Patrick says, Hi, Bruce. Thanks for the great content. I'm definitely with you in terms of rejecting completely the idea of firing McDermott and or Bean. Not even a serious thought, if you ask me. However, I do find it strange and interesting that over the course of an extremely successful run, characterized by significant accomplishments, there are several puzzling, seemingly inexplicable mistakes. I'm not talking about ordinary errors in judgment. For example, trading for Kelvin Benjamin, drafting Cody Ford, signing Vontae Davis, re-signing Feliciano, that's part of the course. I'm talking about really odd, hard to understand or justify decisions. Benching Tyrod for Peterman in 2017, punting at the end of this November game versus Indy, going into 2018 with only Peterman and Josh at quarterback, and of course, the cascade of coaching catastrophes, forever to be known as 13 seconds. For two guys who pride themselves on prudence and process, and who pretty much do seem to have it put together and operate at a high level, they're just some oddball lapses I find interesting, confusing, and maybe a little bit concerning. I'm not sure whether you think I'm onto something or what it even means, but I thought I'd share it with you in case you had some explanations on it. One more thing. Do you think a more athletic DB would have changed how we played versus Kansas City? Oh, don't get me started on that, Pat. You know I'm down for that. The answer is yes. Either during the game and or the last 13 seconds. How? Probability would have altered the outcome. Yeah, I think it would have mattered, but... We didn't have it, so I try not to dwell on it too much. I think the ability to mix and match your coverages a little bit more because you can run a little bit more man because you have elite athletes at the cornerback position I think would help, but it is what it is. Now, in regards to the inexplicable mistakes, I think one of the things that you're seeing that you're not used to seeing is you're seeing sample size. The Bills haven't had a quarterback stick around for a very long time. The Bills haven't had a coach stick around for a very long time. The Bills haven't had a GM stick around for a very long time. And because of that, they didn't have the opportunity to accumulate the necessary tenure to be able to build up a list of head scratchers. But I assure you, go find a fan of the Chiefs. Find a fan of the Steelers. Find a fan of the Titans. People who have historically been fans of good franchises, who have fairly significant stability in the upper levels of their organization. Everybody has a list of those things. Everybody. And every fan base has a few people who want to fire Andy Reid or fire Mike Tomlin or fire Mike Frabel, or fire Sean McDermott. This is not a unique thing. I really don't think so. And I'm fortunate enough to be connected with enough beat writers and fans of other teams on social media that I can see some of those things. One of the things I'm always telling you guys to do is to follow other teams' beat writers on social media. Always do it. The perspective it will give you will be invaluable to recognizing what is normal and what is not. So I do agree that there are some head scratchers. I just think everybody's pretty much got them. Brian says, hey Bruce, I'm listening to your podcast now. And there was a suggestion that was to tie the overtime possession to the opening coin toss. I think your summary of what's going to happen is spot on. The winner will always defer even more than they do now. And the other team will always receive, giving the toss winner the ball in overtime. However, I think this is very impactful. Knowing who gets the ball in overtime will change the strategy during the game. You might be more likely to go for two if you know you're going to have to give the ball back to the other team at the start of overtime. In the end, I like having the cards on the table and not having a coin toss in the middle of the game be so impactful. I agree with you. It is better than, it's better than the alternative. Now, I don't think it's, I don't, I think it's a half measure. I don't think it really fixes the problem. I think you just get an additional benefit. Like you said, knowledge is better. Having that knowledge is probably better, but for me, I think we can do better. Randall says, Hey Bruce, I was listening to your podcast titled SIPA. And one of the things you touched on regarding sunk cost and additional high draft being spent on D lineman that I've been discussing with a friend. And I was curious about your thoughts on team building and self-awareness. I understand that Bean and company have a strong belief in building from the lines out. We've seen this through their draft record and draft pick allocation, as well as free agency spending over the years. Unfortunately, it seems like those returns on the high-end draft picks and free agency dollars have been average at best. A few notes to go along with the statement. Ed Oliver really seemed to come into his own during the second half of the season. I'm very excited to see how he continues to get better next season and beyond but he was a top 10 pick and I personally give less credit to GMs on the success of players drafted with fairly early picks. Rousseau had a lot of upside and was understandably raw after not having a lot of experience at the defensive end position and taking the 2020 season off for COVID related reasons. I also believe he was recruited to Miami Miami's wide receiver. Yes, he was. We talked about that before. We'll see what the development for Epinesa and Basham looks like when they earn a larger role. Key word being earn. but two straight seasons, with pretty meh production from second-round picks, can be pretty deflating. My question is whether or not this is actually a blind spot of Brandon Beans. Is it responsible for him to keep unloading high draft picks and free agency dollars at the defensive line position group, while there are other things that the roster could use an in infusion of talent at the pay rate of a player on a rookie contract? I'm thinking about cornerbacks in particular, I always think of how many sacks Aaron Schobel and Chris Kelsey could attribute to having the likes of Nate Clements, Antoine Winfield, and Terrence McGee patrolling the secondary, giving them those extra fractions of a second to make an impact play behind the line of scrimmage. Apologies for long-winded email. I'm always trying to make light of the Bills roster situation, but I have my mild frustrations as a fan about my favorite team's GM and his free agency and draft strategy. Now, you know me by now. You know I'm team coverage over pass rush, so I'm absolutely 100% down with investing in a corner. However, I don't think you stop swinging just because you missed. Now, we're not entirely sure AJ Epinesa is a miss right now, but you would agree that the two seasons we've seen from him have not been overly encouraging. You wouldn't have seen something from AJ Epinesa and go, yeah, man, he's on the verge of a breakout. I don't think that's necessarily true. Boogie Basham, you never really know. Like Brandon Bean said, he got caught in the numbers. If he would have played Mario Addison's snap share, would he have given you Mario Addison production? I don't know. If you would have gotten Mario Addison production from Boogie Basham in his first season, would you feel more optimistic? Probably. So Boogie Basham is just a, I don't know. And A.J. Epinesa says, "Eh." Ed Oliver, I think you still deserve credit for taking Ed Oliver. Ladies and gentlemen, the Raiders took Cleveland Furl. Cleveland Furl as a top five pick. People screw up top five picks all the time. Quinn Williams was good this year. He just wasn't as good as he was last year. So even though it's a top 10 pick, I still give the GMs a ton of credit because every year we see top 10 picks. Absolutely bust. Solomon Thomas, remember him? So for me, I don't think you stop swinging just because you missed And you don't stop swinging because you have hesitation because you don't know if the swings you just made are going to hit or not. Kevin says, hello, Bruce. I hope you're doing well. I have to admit, I haven't listened to the past several podcasts. What the heck, Kevin? Why would you lead with that? Why would you lead with you're not listening to my show? No, I'm just kidding. He said, I did listen to your latest food for thought. I usually don't let losses affect me too much. But after the divisional game, I needed a little time off from the Bills podcast world. It allowed me some time to reflect on the season. And I believe to the shock of some that this was a successful season. The goal after last year was to catch up at the chiefs. And I believe the and McDermott accomplished that last season. They went 0 two against the chiefs this year. They went one one and went toe to toe with the chiefs without their all pro cornerback. To me, the reality is there are six AFC teams with the ability to make a super bowl run. And there will be the occasional disappointing playoff run. The NFL is a week to week league. And sometimes You get the unstoppable Patrick Mahomes and lose in a divisional round. And other times, you get a second-half Chiefs meltdown and make a trip to the Super Bowl like the Bengals. I believe it's a good idea to keep those things in perspective when people are going off on social media, calling for a rebuild of the Bills roster, or calling McDermott to be fired. The Bills are still a Super Bowl contender for the foreseeable future, and the playoffs showed we have a top-two quarterback on our roster, regardless of whether or not he made the Pro Bowl. As always, keep up the good work. I always look forward to the end of the week, because that means I have new podcasts and food metaphors To look forward to Kevin. Kevin, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. I agree with you. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. And sometimes you're not. But the implication of that statement is that you're not always going to get lucky. The implication of the word hope is that it's not a guarantee. And luck is a part of football. The Bengals have four interceptions off tipped passes in the last two games. Sometimes the ball bounces your way. And we just we just hate it. We absolutely hate the fact that there's a luck element because it means it's something out of our control, and that makes us really upset. For a person who's a control enthusiast like me, you would think that I would have a very difficult time wrapping my head around that, but I don't. There's a level of peace that comes along with recognizing that part of it's luck, and there's nothing you can do about it. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. The podcast is almost an hour long, and you have another Bruce exclusive coming today on the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network, so listen to both of them. But if you're not up for that, if you're sitting there going, Bruce, I didn't even want to listen to this one. You draw on too long. I don't want to listen to other Bruce. Well, you know what? That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.